Well, great morning, LCM. Today is Palm Sunday. And it's also April the 2nd, 2023. This, oh, this. This is the day we celebrate the triumphal entry. It is made by Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, and his very entrance into the city of Jerusalem. So just to be sure you're ready, just to be sure you are prepared to engage in the living and active word of God with us, set aside your phone. Silence it in whatever means possible. Take that last sip of caffeine. In fact, go to the extent of holding back your hankering for whatever culinary comfort your stomach desires. And turn your hunger towards the Word of God. Are you ready, saints? Are you hungry for the eternal truths of God this morning? Then turn with us to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Say there as you're turning there. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So the entirety of the three and a half year ministry of Jesus Christ, it's leading right up to this moment. We are walking in this path. And more than that, God's unfolding plan had been at work for millennia. It's now reaching a culmination point that all of the Tanakh was pointing to. Come on, that's a good day. That's a good time that we're in. Jesus was in a familiar place there on the Mount of Olives, a place that he'd been many, many times with. Also with him was, were his disciples who had become brothers to him. He was giving prophetic instruction to them in order that the word of God would prove true on every level. It's amazing that prophetic instruction actually had to do with a couple of donkeys. See, but more than just a mode of transportation, this pair of donkeys were the God-ordained means of revealing himself as Messiah to the nation of Israel. Somebody say, that's good. That's good. Let's pick up in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. So in Matthew's writing here, he's taking a break from a linear story, from a progression, just to make sure that he is giving full recognition to the fulfillment of prophecy that is quoted from, from Zechariah 9.9. You know, Matthew, he is a firsthand eyewitness of the king that came into Israel, of the king that was revealing himself in a state of humility. That humility is seen in being mounted on a pair of donkeys. How excited this must have been for Matthew and the disciples to look back after the fact and recount the word of the prophets being made more certain. Not merely because he knew of him that he had a, a Facebook acquaintance to him. But these men actually experienced life with this king who entered into Jerusalem. Look at verse 6. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Our goal today, church, is not to teach you about how Jesus was positioned on two ordinary asses. We won't even take the time to expound on the two donkeys, an older and a younger, and how they represent the importance of the generations that are to come. We have sermons that have served those themes extremely well, and we invite you, encourage you, and charge you to go back and listen to those. Instead, somebody say instead. We want you to read with us the next verses and put yourself in the crowd. We want you to think about it as if you were there, as they were experiencing this triumphal entry actually in person. They were there witnessing it, and we want you to get that exact same mindset. All right, so once again, as we read this verse, you're going to put yourself in the crowd. So verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, what's that next word? Hosanna! Oh, what's that next word? Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's the next word? In the highest. How much more validation can you ask for from the crowds? The longing and the anticipation of Mashiach to come in and take his rightful place is now being realized. The the crowd has met him outside the city. He doesn't arrive in the city proper until verse 10. But most of the crowd is taking off their own cloaks to pave the way for this exalted king. Those who are in the crowd who aren't doing that, laying their cloaks down, are cutting palm branches. And they're spreading them before him. In every way, they are recognizing with action that he is the king. And did you notice that there are crowds everywhere? There are crowds that are in front of him. Crowds that are following behind him. He is literally surrounded by people who are giving this full recognition of his kingship. And by stating those phrases, they're quoting from Psalm 118. In fact, in Psalm 118, a few verses prior to what these, uh, these crowds stated, it declares the one who the builders rejected has now become the capstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. And the response that they are now shouting is, Hosanna, which means save us now. In fact, this is a messianic descriptor by stating son of David. And it is echoing through all of the streets. The praise and blessings of the people are showering the one who has come in the name, in the power, and the authority of the Lord. Man, what an incredible position of honor from God's people to their Messiah. Don't forget, we've asked you to put yourself in that crowd. That you are seeing the deliverer of Israel enter into the city and usher in a display of God's power. Don't forget, though, that these very people who are crowds there, they are the generational offspring of those that once were exiled in Babylon and have now resettled back in Israel. And currently, in Jesus' day, they're all under Roman control. But they are looking to the one who would save them. Hosanna. Save them and bring them to the point of experiencing the restoration of Israel. If you're within that crowd and this is what surrounds you, 
and you see the entrance of the king, what would you be shouting at that moment? Hosanna! Come on, I think you can do better than that when you're crying out to him to be the one to come and save you now. Has anybody ever had to cry that? Yeah, I have to do that all the time. When we are talking about saying Hosanna, we're talking about crying out to Yeshua for salvation. Give me a great Hosanna in this house. Come on now, in verse 10 it says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, um, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The shouts, not just singing in a beautiful, melodic way. And by the way, I loved where we ended worship. I'm just going to say it again to make sure that it gets on tape. To sing Hosanna, Hosanna, when you realize what they're doing, these people aren't just singing, they have lost all abandonment, and with all of that they are, they are shouting Hosanna unto the King of Kings, and that kind of shouting has stirred up the entire city of Jerusalem. I mean, the literal text here, if you're just reading along with us in the ESV, it says that the city is asking a question, and the crowds are answering. You didn't cut to a a scene where just a single person is asking another person, hey, who is this? Everyone is having to deal with this triumphant entry. Everyone is having to put their eyes on it and begin to wrestle with their part in this. See, the response of the crowd is that this is the prophet Jesus. I mean, where else would this kind of response be driven from but from the Torah itself? Deuteronomy 18, 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This prophet, this Netzer from Galilee has arrived and he is in the flesh on the scene. Church, did you notice that this celebration in these few verses that we've covered already of the arriving king was developed through the prophets by quoting Zechariah 9, through the writings as the people were uh, shouting about what Psalm 118 says, and through the law as they referenced the book of Deuteronomy speaking about the prophet. See, and Matthew has made sure that we are grasping this fulfillment of the entirety of God's word as Jesus is triumphantly entering into Jerusalem. You know, there's another thing to take notice of as well. In Matthew's quotation of Zechariah 9.9, the king that is coming to them, it gives the descriptor of being humble. And the emphasis on this phrase is, is for the reason to show that Jesus is the perfect model of a king. Meaning that he did not exalt himself. Instead, he lowered himself to become like his brothers in every way, just as Hebrews chapter 2 states. So that. It is only then by the hand of the Father that then he could be exalted in this very moment. Entering into Jerusalem in triumph because he has not exalted himself. It's only been the Father that has brought him to that point. Most of your pericopes talk about this event as the triumphal entry. Yes? The little title over this part. We know what a triumph this was of biblical proportions. But when you're thinking about it, this is less like a ticker tape parade in a New York City Uh, uh, event, but this is the king of all glory who is humbling himself, riding on the younger of two donkeys as he's entering into the city. 
He is showing, not a place of being and exalting himself. He is showing by the very entry that he has of the kind of king that he is. The one who will humble himself and allow his father to exalt him to the highest place that there can be. This is the picture. We know that it's triumphant. But inside of this picture of his triumphal entry is the beauty and the majesty and the power of our king who has humbled himself in every way and is setting the example for us. Hosanna! Hosanna! All right, all together. One, two, three. Hosanna! Now we got it. So knowing now the backdrop, the setting, the tenor, and atmosphere of the triumphal entry. I want you to pay very close attention to it. That the triumphal entry was the result of the triumphal path that Jesus was on. A result of the triumphal path. This is the moment that he is entering into Jerusalem as the Passover land. The one who would take away the sins of the world. And yes, in every way, it is a triumphal entry. And he arrived at this point because he was already on a triumphal path. It did not begin on this day. And it would not end on this day. So here's what we want to do. We want to transition to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry that set his feet towards this day as he would ride into Jerusalem. So everybody turn with us to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3 and verse 13. <laughs> then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized but you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. What a statement of humility. Somebody say humility. Humility. That Jesus is giving here. He clearly knows that the triumphal path that his father has given starts at a place of humility. He recognizes the need of John to baptize him in order to fulfill the righteous requirements given to him by his father. Just think of this. The son of David, the source of salvation for all of the world, beginning with Israel, is lowering himself to the point of needing his brother, John to fulfill his function in life by being the one to initiate the start of Jesus' ministry. See, in simple terms, Jesus recognized that he could not even take the first step without true humility. And this humility is what provided the leading of the Spirit in the very next few verses as the Spirit led him into the desert or into the wilderness. So let's continue in that triumphal path and go to Matthew chapter 4. and We're going to pick up with verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So you would expect that as the Spirit had just descended upon him like a dove, and the Father speaks his words of approval over his Son, that from that point forward, everything would be easy, right? Instead, the same spirit that had just come upon him was now leading him to a place of testing and true hunger. We're talking about that kind of hunger that gnaws at the center of your being. 
becoming very hungry. So back in Jesus' day, they didn't have keto. He didn't fast from caffeine until a splitting headache ensued upon his forehead. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and his physical body was in a place where it was demanding food in order to live one more day. Let's look at verse 3 together. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In this true state of hunger, where his physical body is screaming for sustenance, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy the very declaration that has been the solution to all men's state of hunger. The bread of heaven. The word of God. As you are already familiar with, he successfully triumphs over two additional temptations, utilizing scriptures, both also from the book of Deuteronomy as well, and refusing to give in to the cravings of what any other man in his position would have fallen prey to. So we continue on in this light. Immediately after the victory that Jesus displayed in that moment in the wilderness, consider what provision was offered him because he faithfully stood the test. Look at verse 11 in Matthew 4. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So not only did Jesus demonstrate true humility by being baptized of John, but he continued with the humility as the son of David, as the king that's going to rule the earth to be in need of ministering to by angels. Being fed, being nourished, being replenished with strength by these servants of God. Ultimately, he, let, he refused to let his hunger be satisfied by anything other than that which came from heaven. He refused to let his hunger be satisfied by anything other than that which came from heaven. Do we need to cry out, Hosanna, save us? Save us from our cravings that do not come from heaven. This was God's will and position to put him in. And it would serve as a mature model of what we all are yet to become. And this very theme of being fed by only that which comes from heaven. It's again stated further on in John chapter 4 verse 32. So let's all turn to that passage. Say Hosanna as you are turning to John 4. John chapter 4 and verse 32. But he said to them. I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Come on, church. Jesus here is speaking from his own personal experience with Deuteronomy 8 in the desert and his ongoing dependency to be nourished by doing the will of the Father until it is completed in every aspect. Jesus is literally being fed by every word of instruction that has come from his father. 
He is being sustained, fed, nourished, strengthened by this. And to be honest, I, I actually find this passage both incredibly insightful and I see myself in it and it makes me laugh. The disciples have no understanding of what he's actually talking about. Your food is to do the will of the Father. So you're saying you went and got a hamburger. No, no, that's not what he's saying. The disciples didn't understand it at this point in time, but, somebody say but. but. Oh, thank you, Lord. It was Jesus' life aim to make his disciples know the Father and the provision that only comes from the Father just as he did. Somebody say, that's good news. That's good news. <laughs> you know, when Jesus is stating this in John 4, 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. That, that is a direct reference to Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3. Food which you did not know. The whole purpose of God putting in that position leads to the very next point that Jesus expresses in his final days on earth in John chapter 17, verse 25. So turn with me there. Say Hosanna as you turn. Hosanna! O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And I in them. So Jesus here is continuing on his triumphal path. And it was built, it was founded upon the element of humility. It's continued with experiencing real hunger, dependent on being fed by the Father. And therefore, Jesus is able to make his disciples know the Father in the same intimate way that he did. And immediately following this prayer is when Jesus journeys with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would go through the same steps all over again of humility, hungering, fed, and knowing. And it would further the walk of his triumphal path to the point of experiencing resurrection. Now, we all know that Jesus is the ultimate display of a fully matured king. Can somebody say amen? Yeah. amen. A fully matured king is walking in humility and then exalted by the Father. This is the pattern by which God has matured his sons throughout history and the path of triumph for every single believer. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Everybody in full agreement, right? Yes. Well, let me read to you and explain to you what our goal today is as your pastors. We're going to be like Epaphras in Colossians 4. I'm just going to read it to you from chapter 4 and verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Amen. I'm just going to say it plainly. We are struggling today on your behalf. Amen. Thank you. So that each of you will stand fully mature, yeah. fully assured in what God is doing in this house. Yeah. See, we're not just going to expound upon the triumphal path that Jesus perfectly walked upon because you already know that and you agree with that. 
We're going to help you today to see your own heart condition that keeps you from walking on that same triumphal path that Jesus perfectly did. And you know what? We are confident that you're going to get the right answer today. You're going to get it. You're going to be more fully mature and assured by the end of our time together today. What an amazing day this is. To know for certain that you will be more fully mature. You will be fully assured in what God is doing. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Somebody say hosanna. Hosanna. Is that a blessing? A blessing is an encouragement to know that our Father is going to help us and we're going to help you all reach that point of maturity. It's a blessing. That's a blessing. In addition to that, we all know that Jesus was a blessing and Moses was a blessing. In fact, it's stated in John chapter 1, verse 16. Let me read it to you. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. And the very next verse is the connected thought. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Blessing, blessing. Having one blessing after another is what is happening right here, right now, today. Like Jesus, Moses was the leader of Israel who was also on a triumphal path. Made a triumphal entry into Egypt in order to deliver God's people. And bring them into salvation. So Moses. Moses himself went through the steps of being humbled and matured on the backside of a desert. And that occurred over the course of time of 40 years. Why 40 years? In order to righteously walk in the position of delivering Israel. Numbers 12.3 states that Moses was more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. And from that position of humility, he could then handle the weight and authority that would enable him to lead God's people out of death and into life, as well as give direction to the nation of how to go through the same steps that he did on that triumphal path. Let us help you. Turn with us to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to take a look at verse 3 and say, Hosanna, as you're turning. Deuteronomy Chapter 8, verse 3. Everybody in the room needs to be going there in your actual Bible. Amen. And he humbled you. And he let you hunger. And then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So these exact steps should be ringing in your ears because it's what we just walked through with you in the life and the ministry of Jesus. This exact pattern. It is the very pattern that Moses went through himself so that he could serve as a model for the nation of Israel to experience. In fact, this is the exact path that is the triumphal path for all of God's people. So as we have stated in Jesus' life and ministry and made more pertinently in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we have four clear and distinct descriptors of what that triumphal path involves. And the first is humble. Let's think about the, the actual state of being humble. 
Anybody ever experienced being humble? You're brought low, really low. And what does that look like? You're being emptied of your own strength. You're stripped of all self-induced inflation. All pride is emptied out. You're put in a, a position over and over again where you cannot retaliate or defend your own name. You have to be dependent upon God to uphold his name and include you in that whole process. In fact, it can even get down to the most simple physical task. That when something is broken, a process of being humbled is that no matter what level of effort you exert into fixing that small little thing, it is futile over and over again. One thing breaks after another, parts that you're looking for are not available or are lost. And you're, you're just wondering, <laughs> they give you the wrong one at O'Reilly's over and over again. <laughs> this is the very work of your loving and kind father bringing you to a point of humility. And it is foundational. Foundational for the purpose of knowing how to mature yourself and knowing how to lead others to maturity in the same way. So the very first step on this triumphal path is that he humbles you. Do you see the next phrase there on the screen? He let you hunger. I love the way that it says that. He let you hunger. He didn't just humble you, but he allowed you not to be satiated when you wanted to. That immediate response that you want, that you begin to feel hunger, and you go, no, he's making you and letting you get hungry. Uh, do we need to convince anybody in the house that fast food is bad? No, I'm looking at some of you. I'm making sure. The evidence. I see a McDonald's hash brown wrapper right there. <laughs> fast food. It's a bad thing. <laughs> yes, Hosanna. 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 See, we know that fast food is bad, and we do it anyway. We do it anyway. We like it. We, we actually kind of crave it. But see... This process of a triumphal path requires that God lets you get hungry. I mean, it's almost like Proverbs, uh, I think it's 16, 26. It says the appetite or the hunger of the laborer works, before, works for him. It's designed to create something in you. When you don't get the answer to the problematic situation that you're in, that's a good thing for you. When you don't yet have clear vision or direction... That's a good thing for you. More than just craving a snack. See, when you're craving something like that, a quick fix to it, the problem is, is that it causes you and it causes your insides to eat you alive. What this entire process is doing is trying to get you to be desperate, hungry, desirous for God to speak and show you what is yet to come and what you need. Amen. This is about... This step of God letting you be hungry is about you becoming utterly dependent on God's timing 
to give you what you need. Utterly dependent upon God to come in and rescue you at the right moment. This is what the hunger is designed to do. Those hunger pains are good for you because it's the second step in this triumphal path. When you're in that state of hunger, doesn't your mind become fairly myopic on what you are anticipating to eat? Singular point of interest. You look at your Bible and it, it looks like a steak. And you just can't wait to get home or get to the restaurant and order that one thing that you are so desperately craving. Remember pastor said, the purpose that your father puts you in a position of letting you be hungry is so that you are utterly dependent on his timing to give you what is needed. In addition to timing, it's also portion. Or another way to say it, portion control. Because the very thing that follows being in that state of hunger that he let you be in is that he fed you, not you fed you. Look, we've all been in that state. Let's just put it in a natural sense. Where we have withheld from ourselves eating a certain type of food or quantity of food. And we come to that point where now that time is over. And what do we do? We pig out. We don't go to Salada or... Yeah, exactly. What is that? We don't choose, you know, rabbit food of greens and, and spinach. We go to the largest Chinese buffet that there is. And we get one of everything. Why? It's because we want to fill up in our flesh the satiation of what we have missed and longed for the whole time while we were hungry. The point of being hungry is to get to the position of depending on your father for the timing and portion of what he chooses to feed you with. Being fed only with what he gives. Nothing more and nothing less. No additional or supplemental snacking in between. And here's why. Because it demonstrates, being in that position, it demonstrates that you have relinquished the right to determine what is needed to satisfy your hunger. Is Jesus your Lord? Cody, is Jesus your Lord? Then you have relinquished the right to determine what is needed to satisfy your hunger. And that is natural and it is spiritual. This is the choice and the will of the father of how he fully matures his son. To circumvent it is not only to your own detriment, but also to the detriment of others. Because you are teaching your household, you are sympathizing with your brothers of how to compromise to these carnal cravings. Come on, what pastor said is just so good. You have given up, relinquished the right to determine what is needed to satisfy your own hunger. That is what this triumphal path teaches us. The culmination of this path is that he makes you know. 
that he makes you know. He makes you yada. He makes you experience the closeness of dependency upon the Father. See, this is a supernatural, experiential understanding. This is not about adding to your intellect. This is not about perceiving something with your senses. This is a supernatural process where he makes you know some type of supernatural revelation that he just fed you with. This closeness, when you achieve and walk through this process, you realize how good he's been to you the whole time because you got something that you were not privy to. It was above your ability to be able to grasp, but the process of this allowed you into the realm of supernatural revelation inside of your own being, and that should humble you and then start the process all over again. This is what we are walking in, church. This is what we're going to help you to do even better today. So as stated in Deuteronomy 8, we said that these are steps on the triumphal path. Can any of these steps be skipped? Can any of them be bypassed or renegotiated in lesser form? Skipping or bypassing the previous steps of humility, hunger, and being fed will not land you on the supernatural experiential knowledge of who God is. Do you want to know him? Do you want to know him in even greater fashion? Well, there's something that we have to open our eyes and confront of what's inside of us. And it starts with the very first one that we listed. The center's around humility. But it's seen in this way. It's experiencing a spiritual hunger that is absent of humility. It's absent of humility. When this occurs, when your soul is at a un- place of unrest, a desperation and cry that is gnawing in the center of your being, and it is absent of humility, that's when the carnal comes out. Much like the journey that Israel had after the Red Sea. So you come to a place where you are then saying in your heart, but more importantly to one another, Lord, why did you bring me in this church to die? I don't have what I need when I need it. The fish, the leeks, and the onions, and the meat of Egypt were so much better. I'm tired. I'm tired of the same old manna again and again. I want something in addition, in addition to what I've already been given. Well, I'm at the home group meetings. I'm at foundations. I hear the sermons. But surely there just has to be something that's a bit more of an alternative that will satisfy this hunger inside of me. You very well could be snacking on manna, but the thing is you are grumbling for something better like quail. Numbers 11.4 says this. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. It started with just having a strong craving, and the title that is given to this group is the rabble. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. 
you know, cravings of our unregenerated nature begin to crawl out and cry out for something other in addition to what God is giving you. You know, did God really call me to be part of this fellowship and body? The answer is yes. You just want to skip steps. You want to bypass the fundamental element of being humble so that you can rightly understand hunger. Oh, wait, this morning, this word is cutting you and it's cutting us. Without the word cutting us, where's the transformation? But we must be honest with ourselves about these carnal cravings that are present. Because if we hide them, you know what our Father is faithful to do? He's faithful to call them out. He's going to reveal them. And yes, in that process, we shout, Hosanna, Lord save us. So we're going to help you today. Somebody say thank you, pastors. We're already helping you today. Somebody say thank you, pastors. We're going to talk to you about what causes you to actually skip steps. Y'all are smart enough to agree with the steps that were clearly laid out in Scripture in Jesus' life and in Deuteronomy 8. You agree that humility that causes you to hunger so you can be fed only with heaven and then you get to know him, that that is the process that we all desire. So why do we skip steps? Because we have unhealthy cravings. It comes from us craving for something other than what comes from the mouth of God and then we demonstrate a lack of effort to actually crucify those things. So let me help you. You despise being humbled because you crave the image of being exalted by your own spiritual achievements. You know you should be humbled off the top of your head, using the word humble, you can come up with a Rolodex of scriptures in James and Peter. And you can talk about Philippians 2 all you want, but why don't you become humble? You despise it because you crave something. I know I should be humble. I want to be humble, but you want something more than that. You're craving the image of your own exaltation by your own achievements. And so every time God removes those things from you, every time you're not recognized the way that you should, it is fighting against your own craving. And instead of humbling yourself, you are so wanting to be exalted that you shun the humility that you should have no matter what you say with your mouth. You want people to recognize your great status. And that craving causes you to despise. Say that word with me. Despise being humble by God. Is this settling in on you? In addition to this, you hate being a state of hunger because you crave the constant comfort that is free from adversity. I don't want to be in this position where my body hurts. 
I don't want to be in this position where I cannot sleep. I don't want to be in this position that really is just causing me to have to be in a state of hunger for more. I want to be satiated with just right where I am. I already have my Bible reading plan. I have my specific prayer time. And I don't want to do any more that's required of me. And so when the Lord begins to push beyond those boundaries of what you have already determined of what is supposed to be sustaining you, not just dislike, you hate it. You hate it by the the means of running to comfort over and over again rather than pressing into the state of being hungry. As we were going through these, this seriously challenged us, and we want to seriously challenge you. We all say with our own mouths and credit ourselves with spiritual maturity that we are growing in the Lord. And yet we cannot even recognize the most central thing that is holding us back from either greater maturity and greater growth. And that most central thing is that I hate being in a state of hunger. I hate being in a state of need. And what that looks like particularly is that I'd rather go in private and perfect myself rather than be in a state of needing to be fed by the word from my brothers and from my leaders. I'd rather hide in my own cell of self-perfection and feed myself rather than seeing the nourishment that only comes from heaven and through the servants of God that he is surrounding me by. I told you we were going to be like Epaphras today, struggling on your behalf to make sure that you are fully mature. If we hadn't got to you yet, we got a couple more. You loathe having to be fed only by the word of God on a daily basis. Because you crave the laziness of feasting on other men's revelation rather than having to get your own. Oh, I will. You loathe having to be fed only by the word of God on a daily basis because you crave, you love, you long for staying lazy by feasting on other men's revelation rather than getting your own. I love foundations. Why? Because I get to come and listen to other men who spent 40 or 50 hours this week thinking about this one chapter, studying their whole entire lives to do it. I love how it makes me feel because it feeds me and I don't have to do anything about it. And they have the revelation, and I have not gotten personal revelation about what they've said. See, we loathe this process of having to rely on our God to be the only thing that can feed us. I don't have to talk to you about what you're looking at on your phone as far as news goes, as far as other things. Nobody actually has a problem understanding that you should pray more, right? Does anybody have a problem knowing you should pray more? Does anybody have a problem knowing that you should love him more? Why don't you? 
because we have cravings that cause us to not actually reach out to him and we fill it with everything else. Do you reach for your Bible or do you reach for your phone? Do you reach for entertainment or do you reach for a time in prayer and getting close to him? The reason that you do it is because of the cravings that you have that you would rather satisfy your cravings than to walk in exactly what God has given, even though you know it, even though you could preach it, even though you would say it to everybody, and those are the words that come out of your mouth, but your actual practice is not matching that, and the revelation that you personally are receiving from the Lord demonstrates that what I'm saying is right. And we're going to help you today. We're helping you today. Got one more for you. You abhor him, making you know that man does not live on bread alone because you crave rebellious and prideful independence from doing what his word actually says. The loving actions of our Father are always aiming at getting us to know Him, to experience Him. But it is that obstacle of inner pride and rebellion that manifests in outward pride and rebellion. But this is what it looks like. Eric and Valerie, listen to me. That with your mouth, and with your outer actions, you display sweetness and godliness. You quote scripture. You want to go do evangelism in the park. But you're secretly hiding pride and rebellion that ultimately is not putting into practice the word, the instruction that you've already received. And it results in hiding sin under the seat, under the carpet. And hoping that no one finds out exactly what's going on. Hosanna. No. The eyes of the Lord range from all the earth seeking those who will wholeheartedly search for him. What that requires is for us to allow him to search our entire heart. See, that cry right there, brother, that, that's hope. That's hope. Hosanna hope. Look, if we can't be honest here with our family, we can't be honest with the word of God pointing out exactly what's happening in our own life, then where else can we be honest? Where else can we have hope? That all of our cries, not just Eric and Valerie, all of our cries should be, Hosanna, save us. Save us from our carnal cravings because not only do they blind us, they are crippling us on that triumphal path. And our God desires to heal and resurrect us. But we have a responsibility. It's more than just feeling the weight of what you're hearing in this sermon. We could go around the room and name specifics, and that's us included. But the entirety is this. Is that we approach him with the honesty that his word is approaching us. There is that hope of salvation. There is that hope of healing. I know some of you would like for us to open up the altar right now, but we're not going to do it. 
we're going to make you keep working through this because uh, Pastor Matt and I did not come up with this list by sitting down with a list of you people and figuring out what we wanted to say to you people. We struggled and wrestled with this list and say, this is to us. What would we say to ourselves? What is God wrestling us with, with us right now? What is he trying to help us with and put us back on the right triumphal path? What would we say to us? And we said it to ourselves, and we felt the weight of what you're feeling now. Amen. So we're not letting you out of it. As a matter of fact, we're going we're gonna to take it further. You're welcome. Immediately after the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, Jesus entered into days of intense testing that would validate him as the pure and spotless Lamb of God, one that no one can make a true accusation against and would only resort to false accusations and questions designed to entrap him. In one interaction with the people of Jerusalem, Jesus gives them warnings of cravings that were seen in their leaders but were applicable to all men. So turn with us to Matthew chapter 23 and say Hosanna as you turn. Look, as we begin to read this, we want you to make sure that you implement what Pastor just said. These were cravings seen in their leaders, but were applicable to all men. Matthew 23 verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They preach, but do not practice. I do that. Way that this applies to all of us. When you hear the word preach, it's not just because of a pulpit and a stage. It is what is proclaimed from your lips, but absent from your walk. Well, how many times have you shared the gems of marriage teaching? And yet they are not even evident in your own. How many times have you become so incensed that somebody is not parenting their children correctly? But you are completely oblivious to your lack of implementation as well. The scribes and the Pharisees, these men are the most knowledgeable, biblically literate, and capable of giving wise counsel and correction instruction. That is seen in the way that Jesus his own words attest to this. Do and observe whatever they tell you. We know from the accountings in the Gospels and the book of Acts that many Pharisees came to believe in Jesus and became followers of the way. They demonstrated a repentance of a lack of putting into practice what they were preaching. And that's why they turned to be followers of the way. So we're not reading this passage to propagate the false idea of bad Pharisee, good Christian. We're making this about you. We're making this about us. The testimony of other one association pastors when you visit other churches is that you, LCM, are the most knowledgeable, the most biblically literate, capable, and wise of believers. Yet the fruit of your life shows that you preach better than you practice. And why is that? Because you crave something else in addition 
to the biblical truths and wise counsels of the word that proclaim from your lips. So we are now going to help you see how these cravings that you have are specifically identified in your lives as the Lord has shown them to us in our own. You ready? Very next verse, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They, meaning you. Somebody say, he's talking about me. Load up on the shoulders of those you are ministering to or ministering with rigorous requirements of study and sacrifice that you yourself are not doing in your own life. This is because you crave for someone else to be your source of internal validation. Okay, I'll say it again because I want you to get it. You are looking, you're craving, you're longing, and you love for someone else to be the source of your internal validation. How about I give you some examples to help that sink in? Okay? So how about expecting? Nah. You're, you're wanting. Nah. You're demanding that others in your own home or in this church help you with tasks and responsibility that are clearly yours. Wives asking for husbands to do things that are clearly on your plate because you just don't want to do it. You crave to put these weights on everyone else's shoulders while you actually make no real effort. It's not that you really want someone to help you. It's you really want them to do it and you get credit for them having done it. And also giving yourself credit for the weakness that you already deem yourself to be. I want to hit on this real quick. You ready? You ready to cry Hosanna? Yes, a little to the left. (laughs) Having children is a wonderful thing. Yes. Making them is even better. That bundle of blessing cannot be a shield to hide behind because you're just that damn lazy to do what you should do in your own home. Particularly if you have young men, young adult men, single men living in your house, and they are the majority of babysitters of your children because you have an infant in your arms or ministry to go do... Repent of that right now. Grow up. Take on that responsibility. As much as it falls on the the wife's shoulders, it more so falls on the husband's. You're letting it happen in your own household. You're allowing your wife to stay in a state of victimhood and giving false validation that is absolutely insatiable. There's no amount of service you could ever do to resolve it. You ready for another example? Amen. How about when you have a serious decision to make and you rely on the men of your team? And by that, I mean you put a heavy burden on them because of the seriousness of the decision 
for them to make a decision without any attempt. You didn't put a finger on the weight yourself to have heard from the Lord yourself about the situation that you were in. Hosanna! <laughs> this is because you crave internal validation. You crave the validation of an authority that bears no actual responsibility and therefore carries no weight but gets to receive all the accolades and benefits. You want to stand in a position of authority without the responsibility and the weight. Because you want to receive the accolades and the validation that comes from that authority. That's really a lot better than you're getting right now, but it's going to come alive to you. I said, <laughs> you crave the validation of feeling like you're ministering because of what you say instead of the practice that you are perfecting in your every area of life. How about we just get right to it? Y'all ready to get right to it? You crave the validation of having the approval of the men on this stage or the men in the leadership of this church or of the one association so that you are placing enormous weights on everybody else to be the confidence of your success. And ultimately, it gives you the excuse to hang on to your own cravings even when you fail to lift a single finger to carry the load. I mean, I think I have a word from the Lord, but let me see what Judah has to say about this. I mean, I mean, I think I'm going on the right direction, but what does Baj think? So I'm putting on Baj the responsibility to make me feel validated in what I'm doing. And I have a craving for it. You know how I know? Because it's insatiable. But we are going to defeat this craving today. We're going to crucify it. Because now that we're aware of it, we can cry out, Hosanna! But wait, there's more. <laughs> Are you, you want another one? Oh, uh, we're going to get you some more here. The, yeah, this is going to get everybody. Amen. Kicking the butt is a step forward. The internal validation leads to a, a craving of external recognition. Internal validation leads to a craving of external recognition. This is how. In the very passage that we're currently in, in Matthew 23, read verse 5. Let's read verse 5. They, yeah, we're going to, that's you. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Now follow me very, very closely. For they make their six scripture strings broad. Vastly big. And their prophetic life-giving speech long. On and on and on. It's a man searching for a point.
You see how this, this craving for an internal validation will absolutely lead to a craving for external recognition, and all the while it's showing that you are absent of substance. You wonder why you haven't preached as much as other men, even though your contributions to the 12 are good? You wonder when the pastors will ask you to pray for the kids or some other ministerial opportunity? You don't struggle to pray because you fail to understand how important it is. It's because along with the Word of God, you crave external recognition for it. And praying to the Father who is in secret and trusting that He will reward you secretly, that doesn't even cross your mind at all. You crave external recognition so much that you don't want anyone else's input. Rather, you only want their approval. That's why the scripture string is broad and the prophetic life-giving speech is endless. Solely doing it to gain the approval. And you know this, and this is going to help you identify it today and tomorrow. That when you work so hard to put together scriptures and prophetic life-giving speech and you want no one or nothing to bug you at all, no one to even contribute or what could be a part of it. I want solely the glory for this word that I'm about to give. The problem with this craving is that it is also insatiable. And just as quickly as this recognition is gained, it is lost. And it actually leaves a greater void afterwards than it was before. Come on, we are helping this house today. Come on, now, as we, even as we're struggling with it, we don't realize that that craving for external recognition, it goes away just as quickly as it got here. And now we're insatiable in it. We've got to have more and more and more. And it's actually never enough. But we don't even pay attention to it because it's our own cravings and we're yielding to them constantly. Y'all ready for another one? How about verse 6? And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. They, meaning you, love to have a position of honor. You crave a position that exalts you higher than what you really are because you love the ability to have your internal validation and external recognition solidified into a position that everybody can see. It's kind of the combo of number one and number two that we just did. See, lest you think that this doesn't apply to you. Tell us. Oh, amen. That's a godly daughter right there. Lest you think this doesn't apply to you because you don't currently have a position of honor. As if that was what the craving was actually about. Let us state it plainly. Whether you have a position or not, you can still love a position of honor by longing for it and constantly comparing yourself with those who are in the position of honor. Whoa. When you're considering any position, any recognition, even any greeting, in addition to what God has already given you, this craving causes you to exert superiority in your thoughts, in your action, and in your deeds. 
a misplaced, inappropriate. You think you're superior, you act like you're superior, and you perform things like you are superior because you're actually trying to prove that you deserve the place of honor. Okay, so when you crave a position of honor without starting from a place of humility, you circumvent the hunger that's there, you feed yourself with whatever fleshly pride is in addition to the living word of God, you can't actually end up knowing him the way you should. So in order for you to know him, and by the way, for you to know him, he is able to make you know him. Do you see why that's so important that he can make you know him? See, the answer, somebody say the answer. The answer. The answer's in the very next verse in chapter 11. Let's go to verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, is there a sowed in this passage? No. Yes. Yeah, there's not a sowed in this passage. It's just there's a sowed in our own ability to grasp it and put it into practice. And that's why we're highlighting to you the very things of carnal cravings that keep you from arriving at this verse. So let's go back to those crowds. Remember we said you are the crowds. The crowds we spoke of to you earlier are about who were witnessing, those that were participating in, and prophetically declaring the triumph of Jesus. They were also the same crowd who were persuaded by the chief priests and elders to ask for Barabbas. The same ones that were crying out, crucify him. And this is what we mean. In your own lives, when the Messiah, the son of David, Jesus, the Christ, when he is acting in agreement with your own expectations, you shout, Hosanna. You welcome that coming king because he's now he's here to do what you want him to. However, when you are challenged by him, when your hypocrisy of validation, recognition, and position are called out for what they really are, you then say, crucify him. But let's dig into that a little bit deeper. It doesn't actually come out of your mouth, crucify him. But who, who is it always pointed at? It's pointed at those around you who are acting just like Jesus. You begin to have critical, pointed, even murderous thoughts at your brother and your sister because they're only speaking the very words of God to you. When they do what you want them to do, you shout, Hosanna, son of David. Salvation has come. But when they point out a carnal craving, you want to burn them on the altar. You want to hang them on that stake. There's actionable steps that our Father is leading us to. And that is to identify these areas in us. Not about somebody else about us, about you, and then take steps to put it to death. I'm going to jump in on that topic just for a second. You know that you are screaming, crucify him every time you get offended at a brother. 
for all of our easily offended souls in here. And we have a lot of them. They won't admit, but they will after today. We're going to get it today. We're getting it. Every time you're offended, you have stopped yelling out Hosanna, and you've started out yelling, crucify him because you want to crucify them. God is helping us today. His triumphal entry was the result of a triumphal path. He did it. He did it. He, he accomplished it perfectly, but you already knew that. Again, who's going to argue with praying more, needing to love him more? The real issue is to crucify the cravings that you currently have that are equal to or greater than him. This is the key. This is what we've been talking to you about today. The desire for recognition from a brother so that you could feel validated internally. That, that craving, no, that longing, that love that you have for that feeling that you will ignore everything else that you know is right even while you're saying it, but you're still holding on to the craving. Church, this is the week that Jesus went to the cross. This is the week that he rose from the grave. Can somebody say hallelujah? hallelujah. So this is the week that you... This is the week and the day that you must crucify your own cravings so that you can walk in the same triumphal path that Jesus did. Stand to your feet with us right now. Isn't this fun? <laughs> this is a blast. Why? Because we're no longer in obscurity and ignorance of what's really keeping us from that triumphal path. As we get our hearts prepared for action here at the altar, you know that the crucifixion and resurrection are yet to come in the triumphal path of Jesus. Today, you are the one that needs to die. You're the one that needs to die to your carnal cravings and be resurrected in new life. That is the continuation. So here's the one singular question. What cravings in your life do you need his triumphal entry in? I'm sure as we preach this message, it's already come to the surface and probably in multiple areas. This is where you invite that coming king into those areas of carnal cravings. And you let his victorious power help you put them to death so that you can be resurrected to life. So as we pray, make your way down to the altar. Mighty Father, we thank you for your living word that cuts our heart, that pierces our soul. So that we can be led into your triumph. Lord, as we all lay our hearts before you, well, help us see what we can't see. And help us put to death what we can't do in our own strength. Help us crucify these cravings, Lord. And may your name be glorified for it. In Jesus' name, amen.